that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. I'm Ali Velshi in for Alex Wagner. Last month, the United States economy gained 216,000 jobs. Unemployment kept steady at an historic 3.7%. That marks three consecutive years of economic growth in Biden's three years in office. And along with more jobs come consistently higher wages. There's no way to paint this as anything but good. So let's see how they celebrated the good news over at Fox. The job numbers are through the roof. Jobs numbers are are pretty gangbusters. Job numbers smashed expectations. Of course, the left is trying to figure out how to spin these great economic numbers. Okay, I'm kidding. That that isn't how they celebrated at Fox. That was Fox, but that wasn't today. Those were Fox personalities talking about positive job numbers during Donald Trump's presidency. Because in Fox's world, the monthly job numbers were always fantastic when Trump was in charge. But today, when Fox and even Fox Business did talk about Biden's positive job numbers, the bulk of it sounded like this. We've got another strong jobs report, but it isn't what it appears. Under the hood, this, it's a rather soft number. This is one of those rare occasions when a lower unemployment rate is bad news. Now, what makes that negative reaction to today's jobs number so amazing is that Biden's job numbers for last year were as good or better than Trump's job numbers for every year he was in office. The economy added 2.7 million jobs last year. That matches the best year of Trump's presidency. The years when Fox was saying his numbers were through the roof, gangbusters, and smashed all expectations. And it's not just job growth and wages. Inflation is under control. The stock market, which Trump bragged about ceaselessly, is at record levels. Manufacturing is being rebuilt in America. You hear a lot of Republicans these days saying they want the Trump economy back. What part do they want back exactly? By most metrics we use to measure the health of the economy, it is measurably better under Biden than it was under Trump. But reality doesn't actually matter here. This was Fox and Friends this morning visiting a diner in Dallas to talk to voters. Raise your hand if you think that we're heading down the right direction from an economy standpoint. The economy is on the right track. Okay, who thinks we're on the wrong track, economy-wise? Oh, yeah, that's pretty much the entire diner. (sighs) All right. We talk a lot about how the Republican Party and its leaders seem to be living in an alternate reality with their own alternative facts. But lots and lots of Republican voters are as well, and not just on issues of the economy. That would be one thing. But on core issues like democracy. Tomorrow marks the third anniversary of the January 6th attack on our Capitol. NBC News has been interviewing Republican voters in Iowa ahead of the primaries there to ask them what they learned from that day. And a lot of the answers we got were unsettling. I knew it was a lie from the beginning. I mean, the police were provoking. I think there were FBI plants. I just didn't like the way that it went last time. I I feel kind of like we got cheated. I think the media distorted it. I think the media gave us the wrong impression of what really happened. 
the whole thing was covered up. But I knew it was all fake. I knew, I knew it was infiltrated from the day. Because I, I watched the whole ra the rally. It was all planned. I mean, when Trump planned by, planned by Pelosi and the rest of the crooks. Planned by Pelosi and the rest of the crooks. Now, as out there as these voters in Iowa were, they're not that much of an anomaly. Just this week, the University of Maryland and the Washington Post released new polling showing that 25% of Americans say it is probably or definitely true that January 6th was an inside job instigated by the FBI. Now, I can't believe I have to say this, but just in case some Fox viewer got stuck on MSNBC while trying to change channels and their remote just ran out of batteries, January 6th was not an inside job instigated by the FBI. Okay, now you can change the channel. There's zero evidence of that. But 25% of America believes it anyway. 34% of Republicans, if you want to look at it that way. 34%, more than a third of Republicans, believe it was an FBI inside job. What makes this all the more daunting is that sentimental, sentiments like these are getting more popular. In 2021, 27% of Republicans blamed Donald Trump for the events of January 6th. Now, after the House January 6th hearings... After Trump has been indicted multiple times for crimes he allegedly committed that day and leading up to it. Now, about half that number, only 14 percent of Republicans blame Donald Trump for January 6th. And Trump himself has embraced January 6th. He's reclaimed that narrative as his own. He kicked off the first rally of his 2024 campaign last year with this, a song he recorded with a group of inmates imprisoned because of their actions on January 6th. That's some weird stuff. He's pledged that he would pardon all the January 6th convicts if he is reelected. These are the people that committed a violent insurrection in an attempt to keep Donald Trump, who had lost the election, in power. And rather than distancing himself from them, he embraces them. He is rewriting history, and a growing number of Americans are believing his rewritten version. Tonight in Iowa, Trump again repeated the lie, telling a crowd of supporters at a campaign event that there was Antifa. There was FBI. There were a lot of people there, too, leading the charge, his words. And that comes just hours after the Supreme Court announced today that it will be taking up the issue of whether or not Donald Trump can be disqualified from the ballot in Colorado because of the role he played in the insurrection. We're going to have some expert help unpacking that whole thing in just a second. But what cognitive dissonance this is, what a gap between Trump's narrative and reality Tonight, President Biden gives the first major address of his 2024 campaign on the eve of the three year anniversary of the January 6th attack on our Capitol. Biden spoke just miles away from Valley Forge, where George Washington mobilized troops nearly three centuries ago in the Revolutionary War. The president framed this election as just as much of a fight for our nation's democracy as Washington's was back then. To Biden, this election is a fight between truth and lies, and the stakes in that fight are as high as they can be. To Biden, this is about the future of our democracy itself. When the attack on January 6th happened, there was no doubt about the truth. At the time, even Republican members of Congress and Fox News commentators publicly and privately condemned the attack. As one Republican senator said, Trump's behavior was embarrassing and humiliating for the country. But now that same senator and those same people have changed their tune. As time has gone on, gone on, politics, fear, money, all have intervened. And now these MAGA voices 
who know the truth about Trump on January 6th have abandoned the truth and abandoned the democracy. They made their choice. Now the rest of us, Democrats, independents, mainstream Republicans, we have to make our choice. I know mine, and I believe I know America's. Joining me now is Tim Snyder, history professor at Yale University, author of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Uh, Professor Snyder, good to see you. Um, You helped us understand in the early days after this uh, January 6th insurrection, this concept of the big lie, the idea that regardless of whether we have evidence and you can see it yourself in 2023 much better than you could in the 1930s and the 1940s, regardless of that, If someone lies enough about something, about how the election went or what happened on January 6th, people can come to believe it. History shows us that. And what we have watched in the last two years is exactly what you warned us of what would happen. Yeah, I mean, the the important thing is the scale of the lie. You tell a lie that's so big that people can live inside it. You tell a lie that's so big that people won't believe that you would deceive them on that scale. You have to be a certain kind of person to do that with a certain kind of motivation. And unfortunately, we now have a politician like that in the form of Mr. Trump. So we now are living, a lot of Americans are now living inside this lie. And it means that, you know, Mr. Biden has made a couple of important points. One is that you can't really do democracy without truth. And the other is that you can't really do democracy without a sense of responsibility. I, I can't. I've lost count of how many times you and I have talked in that period. But there's one conversation that sticks out to me. And it was the end of a, a conversation where I said, uh, Tim, you, you, you can have the conversations you can have and write the books and go on TV and I can do what I can do. What can most people do to inoculate themselves? And, and you, you gave me a litany of things, including, uh, you know, joining voting, running for your, your city council, supporting and subscribing to your local news. What can people do to inoculate those around them? Because we're finding more and more Americans are believing this lie rather than fewer of them, despite more evidence coming out. What can those of us who believe democracy is at stake do for others? How do we have that conversation. Yeah, I mean, you and I have the great luxury that we can have this conversation in front of lots of people. But what we all have to be having is the smaller conversations. You know, I was in the Midwest over the holidays. I had some smaller conversations. You have to have small conversations. You have to play the small game. You have to treat this as a kind of, for the next 10 months, 11 months, you have to treat this as a struggle where every little bit matters, where every letter to the editor, every conversation, every subscription, every supporter of a good reporter, all these things are going to matter. Every phone bank, every little thing is going to matter. We have to treat this as I think the, I think President Biden was right as a it's a sacred cause, but the sacred cause doesn't defend itself. It gets defended by a million people doing a million little things. Mm-hmm. And and when you look at the, back at the last election, the 2020 election, it was closer than most people think. 70 plus million people voted for Donald Trump, 70 plus million people, 80 plus million people voted for uh, Joe Biden. But actually, more people didn't vote than voted for either of them. So are the are the, the third of Republicans who believe all this nonsense, are they movable and where the attention should be or or should we be concentrating on something else? I mean, I think I, I think that it's interesting because I think what Mr. Biden is doing in terms of strategy is actually running on the economy. I mean, I think their idea is that the economy is doing very well and that's going to show itself and they're going to run in principle on democracy. And I think it's that principled stand, if they can hold it up above policy, which reaches the people who may disagree with him about policy, right? I think and I think that's probably the right thing to do. There is a, you know, there's probably a 25% of Americans who aren't movable. 
But there is a meaningful, if shrinking, pool of people who care about the system, but who disagree with the policies. And I think those people can be reached, if not to vote for Biden, at least not to vote for Trump. At the same time, one of the things I liked about Biden's speech was that he emphasized that democracy is a good thing, right? It can't just be pitched as we're going to lose the status quo. It has to be pitched as democracy is much better than the alternative and we can make it still better in the future. But when you think back to a place like Germany in 1933, there were some people who were fleeing. They were they were understanding that this was really going to get very bad. And it's, it, it may be hard for people to remember how big and important a country and an economy Germany was in the 1930s. There was a real fundamental belief this can't really fail. And there are people in America yeah. who feel the same thing. There are people in America who say Donald Trump didn't really break anything. I mean, it all kind of all survived despite his efforts. What do you say in response to that? I really appreciate your saying that because it's, this is the kind of thing where historians, you know, we understand and we try to teach that lots of things are possible that don't seem possible. The 20th century really should have been Germany's century. But some people made some mistakes at a critical time, and it wasn't. Instead, what is Germany remembered for? It's remembered for the Nazis. The 21st century, structurally, for lots of reasons, really should be America's century. But we can still choose to blow it. A few people can do a few big bad things. A lot of other people cannot care enough about the institutions. And we can blow it, too. We can lose, we can lose this century. The future is open, unfortunately, both in a good sense and in a bad sense. Tim Snyder, always a pleasure to talk to you. We appreciate your wisdom, uh, and thank you for, for making us all smarter about this. Tim Snyder is a history professor at Yale University. All right, coming up, I'm going to speak to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and creator of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, about some newly reported double standards surrounding those who clamored for the resignation of Harvard University President Claudine Gay. Plus, the Supreme Court announced late today it will take up the issue of whether Trump's actions on January 6th can disqualify him from the ballot in Colorado. Andrew Weiss standing by to discuss this big legal development. That's next. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give Order now at Acura.com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Tonight, in a widely expected but important decision that could shape this year's presidential election, the Supreme Court announced that it will review the unprecedented ruling from Colorado's Supreme Court last month that deemed the former President Donald Trump ineligible to run for office in that state. Colorado's highest court ruled that Trump was ineligible to appear on the state's primary ballot because his actions leading up to the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol met the constitutional definition of insurrection, among other things in their decision. 
Now, in a one-page order this evening, the Supreme Court announced it will hold oral arguments on the case next month on February the 8th, which, to be clear, in Supreme Court time is light speed. Following the court's announcement, Colorado Democratic Secretary of State confirmed that as a result of the Supreme Court agreeing to hear the case, she has now certified Donald Trump's name on the Colorado primary ballot. So what happens now? How will the Supreme Court proceed? How will the election proceed? Joining me now is, I'm, I'm really grateful for this, Andrew Weissman, former senior member of Robert Mueller's special counsel that investigated Russian interference in the 2016 election and co-host of the incredible MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. I, I feel like I would just like you to interview yourself uh, for this because I, I this is this is uh, a, a confusing issue. Let's just yep. get go through bit, bit by bit. Yep. Colorado Supreme Court says Donald Trump's ineligible. They put out a, a pretty important and, and well-studied uh, decision on this, but immediately stayed the decision right. until today, until January 5th, because this is the day that the ballots had to be printed for Colorado. Yep. Now so, what happened? So they actually did more than that. They, um, For everyone who was criticizing Colorado, they were showing in great restraint because, as you said, they did find that he should be disqualified, but they immediately stayed the decision and they stayed it sort of with two different triggers. They said it is stayed until today unless the Supreme Court takes cert, in other words, it's going to hear the case, in which case it stayed until the the decision comes out. So they basically were saying, you know, if the Supreme Court wants to hear that, we're stepping aside because right. we're obviously are subordinate to the Supreme Court. So there, there was a stay in place. They took the Supreme Court took the case. There's still a stay in place, which means that the ballots in Colorado will have Donald Trump's name on it for the moment. Right. Um, and then we obviously. And that's not a political decision by the Secretary of State. As absolutely. a result of the Supreme Court taking this case, the Colorado uh, decision is. On hold. It's, it, it's, it's exactly, and the Secretary of State has is following the law, right? Which is that she was told that you know this is what you have to do, right. and that the decision is on hold, so she has to follow the current law, right? And then we'll all, you know, obviously we'll decide on February eighth. We'll have the oral argument. Yeah. I would expect a decision very soon because after the the, the primary is on March the fifth. And there are other primaries even yeah. before that. There's overseas voting. There's yeah. ballots that go out. I mean, this will be quite complicated. You no, know, assuming that Colorado's decision is affirmed, okay, it will be very complicated to figure out not just in Colorado but in the other states how to deal with the various challenges. So let's play this out both ways. Colorado's decision is affirmed. Donald Trump is ineligible to be on the ballot on the basis of uh, Section 3 of Article 14 of the uh, of Amendment 14 of the Constitution. Right. What happens then? Well, so there's a challenge in Maine. Yeah. Um, presumably, unless there's some, some other sort of issue that arises, that's in very good shape, so he could be off the ballot there. We're hearing about other challenges. And plus, if the Supreme Court were to say... Um, depending on how they say it, that this is a viable theory and it works. You can imagine other lawsuits being brought. For instance, in Michigan, there was a case that basically said, you know what, this may be right, but it's not right at this stage. It may be right later. So you could see a proliferation of these cases depending on how the Supreme Court rules and what ground they choose to affirm it. And and Supreme Court, it's not always binary. Sometimes it's in the middle. So we don't really know how it's going to go. But let's say they largely come down on Donald Trump's side, that he's not disqualified. What what then happens? Um, And as we were just chatting about it, just to be clear, Donald Trump has many, many 
arguments because it, and it only takes one for right. him to win. So there are a lot of off ramps for the Supreme Court if they want to rule in his favor. Um, assuming that they were to say the Colorado Supreme Court got it wrong, um, and it, assuming it's not just a sort of state court procedural rule um, that they rule on, but they say, for instance, um, that the office of the president is not covered by this amendment, in which case these are all gone. Um, this whole theory is is dead at that point moment. nobody keeps nobody keeps suing on this because exactly. we know the supreme court it's, is. it's gone to the highest court yeah that is what the rule of law means and we're a rule of law country we're still a rule of law country right um and regardless of you know who's running for office and the support for them yeah. um ceg your conversation just a moment ago yeah. with uh, with uh they started uh, tim snyder um but so we will follow that rule uh, there are uh, there's an argument that donald trump is making uh, in this particular instance, that some political commentators are making. Most legal people are not making this argument and that it is unsound for the courts to make a decision about who the president of the United States should be. So the Ludigs and the tribes and you and other people have said the law is the law. The, the Supreme Court needs to interpret it. But if the law says he's ineligible to run, that's what it is. The argument right. that you should just let him run so that the people can decide is not a, a strong legal argument. So the, the problem with that argument is, let's just take it out of this context about insurrection and rebellion. And we had somebody who was a teenager who was running for office. Um, Who's very popular. And people might really like that. Exactly. Let's yeah. assume they're, they're wonderful. Um, that, that is part of our democracy. It's the Constitution. So I don't understand the argument if I would say this is somehow not democratic. The Constitution was part of a democratic process, and it took a sort of supermajority to have the Constitution. That's what we follow, unless and until it has changed. And as long as just to be a nerd, but Marbury versus Madison is about the, it's the courts that decide ultimately what the Constitution says. And regardless of which way the, Const the Supreme Court comes out on the February 8th argument, I mean, they will have determined how we're supposed to interpret this, this provision, which has not yet been, to be fair, has not yet been the subject of litigation um, at the Supreme Court level because we have not been in a situation. situation. Exactly. Fortunately for this country, we have not been in a situation where you have a viable candidate for the presidency where the issue is, just to step back, regardless of the legal point, we have somebody who is running for office who is a more than a viable candidate who has in, it's, has been found to engage in insurrection or rebellion. Um, I've been sweating this all evening, but knowing that you were going to be here made it a lot easier. I appreciate <laughs> it, my you. friend, Andrew Weissman. Uh, thank you for being with us tonight. You're welcome. All right. Andrew Weissman, by the way, as you know, is a former member of the Robert Mueller Special Counsel, and he's a co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. All right. We got lots more ahead, including the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and creator of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones. She joins me live in studio on the latest developments, underscoring the hypocrisy surrounding the former Harvard president, Claudine Gay's ouster from the institutions. Stay with us. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? Extra, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com. 
Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Today, in a continuation of the Ivy League plagiarism story we've been following, we saw an apology. It was sincere, and it's one from which we can all learn something. It reads in part, quote, There are four paragraphs in my 330-page Ph.D. dissertation where I omitted quotation marks for certain work that I used. For each of the four paragraphs in question, I properly credited the origin source's authors with references at the end of each subject's paragraph and in the detailed bibliography end pages of the dissertation. In these four paragraphs, however, I did not place the subject language in quotation marks, which would be the proper approach for crediting the work. I regret and apologize for these errors, end quote. Facing a wave of plagiarism allegations, a senior and accomplished academic has apologized, began reviewing her work, and proactively launched the process of seeking corrections. The academic in question here is Neri Oxman, an architect and an artist who was also a tenured professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology from 2017 until 2021. The apology came after the Business Insider magazine uncovered multiple sections of her 2010 dissertation where she lifted entire chunks of writing from other scholars without proper quotation or attribution. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who is Neri Oxman and why should I care? Well, what Neri Oxman did happens more often than you might think in academia, especially if the academic is using technical language. She has apologized, as she should have. She is fixing it, as she should. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that Neri Oxman isn't some obscure academic. She's the wife of Bill Ackman, the billionaire hedge fund manager and Harvard donor who just joined forces with anti-liberal crusader Chris Rufo to oust the Harvard president Claudine Gay over literally the exact same thing. Last month, when Harvard decided against removing Gay as president following Congresswoman Elise Stefanik's bad faith questions about anti-Semitism on campus, a coalition of mostly conservative men helmed by Rufo and aided heavily by Ackman and his million followers on X launched a public campaign against Gay. They reportedly accused her of plagiarism repeatedly. And like Oxman did, Gay asked her university to investigate her work, identified errors of a substantially similar type. Then she apologized and sought corrections. And when they would not satisfy her detractors, including Bill Ackman, she resigned as president. But that is not enough for Rufo or Ackman. For some reason, Gay is different from Neri Oxman. In a post on X, Ackman did not question his wife's body of work. He immediately came to her defense, writing, quote, Part of what makes Neri human is that she makes mistakes, owns them, and apologizes when appropriate, end quote. For Oxman, her apologies, her ownership of her mistakes, make her human. For Claudine Gay, the former black president of Harvard, such accommodation, such empathy are not available. Because also today, Rufo began questioning the data Gay used in her work, and Ackman 
he repeated calls for Gay to be fired from Harvard altogether. This way of doing business still hasn't ended. This story is not over. Tonight, new information here. Business Insider is reporting what it says are more examples of plagiarism in Neri Oxman's work, including a passage of her dissertation that appears lifted directly from Wikipedia. So what's Bill Ackman's response tonight? He is saying, we're coming for you. We're coming for all of you. In another post on X, he wrote, quote, this experience has inspired me to save all news organizations from the trouble of doing plagiarism reviews. We will begin with a review of the work of all current MIT faculty members, President Kornbluff, other officers of the corporation and its board members for plagiarism, end quote. We will share our findings in the public domain as they are completed in the spirit of transparency. So that's where we are now weaponizing accusations of plagiarism against academics you don't like. Not your wife, but the other ones. If you, like Claudine Gay, write things that offend the sensibilities of people like Bill Ackman, if he finds your appointment offensive, he will come for you. Groups of people like Rufo, like Ackman, will target you. They will find and exaggerate mistakes that you have made, and they will weaponize them. And you will not get their empathy, and you will not get their sympathy for your humanity if you make mistakes. We've seen this story before. We've seen it recently. The Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones has experienced it firsthand and she joins me next. In 2021, Nicole Hannah-Jones was going to make history. Two years after launching the 1619 Project at the New York Times, where she placed the contributions of black Americans at the center of this country's history, and one year after she won the Pulitzer Prize for her work, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill announced that it was hiring Nicole Hannah-Jones. She was going to be the first black scholar appointed to be a so-called night chair. Now, historically, that position comes with tenure but not for Hannah Jones. When right-wing opponents and a top donor at the university, the man that UNC's School of Journalism is named after, objected to Hannah Jones's appointment, her tenure was blocked. It took mass protests for the university to decide to grant her tenure, but by that time, she had chosen instead to join the faculty of Howard University, one of the country's top historically black colleges and universities. This week, Hannah Jones is reminding people of what happened to her because it looks a lot like what happened to now former Harvard president Claudine Gay. Joining me now is Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter at the New York Times Magazine, creator of the 1619 Project and the night chair in race and journalism at Howard University. Uh, As you point out, Nicole, we we never meet on good occasions. Uh, But this one's important for people to understand because a lot of Americans have been hoodwinked. They think uh, Claudine Gay is out uh, because she said something anti-Semitic, which she didn't. They think Claudine Gay's out because she plagiarized. Uh, she had some inconsistencies in her citations, uh, which she reviewed and asked for corrections to, and Harvard determined that that was not, uh, that, that the proper uh, steps were taken. She's out because they came for her. She's out because a very organized group of people, very similar to the people who came for you, came for her. Yes, absolutely. You know, one, let me just say, um, my heart is really with uh, Dr. Gay. Um, this is a woman who had a stellar academic career and has had her reputation sullied strictly for political reasons. 
I know yes, exactly you know what, that looks what that's like. like. Um, this is not about plagiarism. This is not about anti-Semitism. This is about, um, as you said, an extremely well-organized propaganda campaign from the right um, to make anyone black in a high position of power seem like a, a diversity hire, a, an unqualified affirmative action hire. This is the next iteration of the anti-critical race theory campaign that led to the banning of books and curricula that's now trying to target people of color in leadership positions and um, do a great deal of damage to the racial progress that has been made. And in fact, it's it's the same people, the, the same guy, Chris Rufo, who popularized uh, CRT incorrectly, who also had Donald Trump uh, write, you know, edicts about what it should be. The same people who wanted to get 1619 out of the vernacular and started the hashtag 1776. It's the same thing. It's this movement that says some of you have come too far and we're, we're, we're taking it back now. Absolutely. I mean, just look at the language that's being used. So one, as we were discussing, um, Chris Rufo is not even trying to camouflage what he's Correct. doing. Correct. He, he puts it all out on social lays media. lays the playbook yeah. out. He says, this is what we're going to do. And then he does it. Um, what is disheartening is how he's able to lay out the playbook and be so successful. What happened with Claudine Gay? Anyone who's ever written a long form paper mm-hmm. with, that goes through multiple revisions knows that you can make citation errors. Yep. Um, you've rewritten the same sentence 12 times and eventually the quotations fall off or sometimes you don't cite it in the right place. Even her. It happens commonly. It happens all the time, um, which we've seen. It happens even with some of the people who have made the accusations um, or who are related to some of the people who've made the accusations to Dr. Gay. But we're in a landscape now where because this is about politics and not really concerns about plagiarism, that you can't make mistakes. You cannot make an error. And especially as a black woman. That's the bigger issue because there are black women who enjoy positions of authority in this country in a way that hasn't been done historically because we as a society realized that that was an important thing to do who are now, they got targets on them. That's right. Every black woman in a position of authority in this country, they're going to wonder, did you really get that job properly or or were you a diversity hire or did you get a leg up because you're black? Yes. And this is this is what I say. This is this is how it is impossible for black women to win um, um, in this moment that we're in, because if you're not successful, then they say you were lazy, you didn't work hard enough. Um, if you are successful, they say that you didn't deserve it. And they will put you under a, a level of scrutiny that, frankly, none of us would be able to withstand. I know what that feels like. Um, if you go through every single word, if you parse every single, you know, where's the comma, where are the quotation marks? I don't think anyone's work with would stand up to that scrutiny. Um, but we also, therefore, give grace and say, OK, you made an error. This you is how you correct, correct that it. Error. All the universities That's have a right. system for that, that you find you ask for a review, you get the review. But here's something interesting. So so this happens now to Bill Ackman's wife. Yes. Bill Ackman's been on a campaign. His wife gets found to have done some stuff. It's actually more egregious than than what uh, anything Claudine Gay was accused of doing. That said, he said she's a human. She makes mistakes, yes. which I think is a reasonable answer. And I think we should give Bill Ackman's wife the grace of the fact that she's a human who made a mistake. But because this has been dug up, now he's saying we're coming for all of you. He's he's going to he's got money, so he's going to fund uh, a review of every academic at MIT's uh, research. 
this didn't happen before there were women and people of color in power. People could just get away with whatever they could get away with. We weren't really in a meritocracy because a whole bunch of people were left out of that discussion. Absolutely. I mean, what we're seeing is what we know has always been the case. White men get the benefit of the doubt. They get the presumption that they are qualified, that they are the most qualified. A person of color, and particularly a woman of color, particularly a black woman, the presumption is that she is not and that she is uh, deserving of this extra scrutiny because she shouldn't be in that position. Let me tell you, in, in the 380 years that Harvard has existed, um, Claudine Gay is not the first black woman because she was the first black woman who was qualified. Mm -hmm. She was the first black woman who had an equal chance to actually mm -hmm. um, uh, be put into that position. And now she has the shortest tenure of anyone in that position. That is not about Claudine Gay and her qualifications. That is about a society that is unprepared to see a black woman at, at kind of the citadel of American uh, academic power. So the, we've been talking about this all week. The reason I wanted to talk to you is because I've always admired your personal courage in this. You have come under attack on social media, in public, from the president of the United States, from Christopher Rufo, from these same powers. And you're not giving up. You, you don't stop. You created a new reality for yourself. So what's your inspirational message right now? Because for a lot of people in America, they're scared tonight. Mm. That, that the Ackmans and the Rufos of the world will come for them, too. Well, I, re I really have two things to say. Um, I had an institution that supported me no matter what the attacks were, and that means a lot. Um, originally, Harvard supported Claudine Gay. Then they didn't. Institutions are going to have to uh, show some courage in these moments because what you do when you fold in face of this is then you only uh, encourage more of it to happen. Yes. They're going to say, oh, we, as they did, you we did. got her scalp. Yeah. So now we're One going to down, come from more down. people. That's what they, they've been tweeting. Right. So institutions like Harvard, you have power. Use your power. Don't sell out this woman or sell out others when you know that these are political attacks. And the other thing I'll say is uh, we come from folks who have always had to fight. I understand um, that being in this positions that I'm in, are uh, it's a tremendous privilege. I'm going to keep fighting. And all of us, if, if we band together against this, we will win because we're right, because we have ethics, we have morals, we have scruples, we have humanity. Um, so we just we cannot give up in this moment and we can't be weak. Thank you for everything you've done, Nicole. Good to see you as always. Thank you always. Nicole Hannah-Jones is the night chair in uh, race and uh, journalism at Howard University. All right. When we come back, voters across Florida came out in greater than needed numbers to put a voter initiative protecting access to abortion on this November's ballot. But can they get over the next hurdle? Governor Ron DeSantis's handpicked state Supreme Court. That's next. Back in November, Ohio voters, uh, voters amended their state constitution to guarantee the right to abortion, but it was not an easy road. A few months earlier, in August, Ohio Republicans, knowing that more than half the population supported preserving abortion rights, called a special election to try to raise the threshold for passing any future ballot measures from a simple majority up to 60%. But despite all that, reproductive rights prevailed, as they have in each and every statewide ballot measure since the fall of Roe v. Wade. Now, this coming November in Florida, reproductive rights activists are hoping for the same outcome. Today, organizers announced they have collected the signatures of more than one million registered voters to put a similar question on their state's ballot. If it passes, the measure would effectively undo Florida's current abortion bans. But anti-abortion forces aren't giving up. 
The Florida Supreme Court said it would take up a challenge launched by Florida's attorney general over the amendment's language. And if that initiative, the initiative survives that challenge, Florida will, unlike Ohio, need at least 60 percent of the voters to enshrine the right to abortion into law. Joining us now is Anna Hokemer, executive director of Florida Women's Freedom Coalition and a campaign organizer for the ballot initiative in that state. Anna, thanks for joining us. Uh, look, right off the top, you've got a, a, a higher threshold than they have than they had in Ohio. The good news is on your side that every statewide initiative so far has succeeded in protecting um, reproductive rights. But you're up against something unique in in Florida that that that, that the culture war around this is sort of centered around Florida. What's most interesting about Florida is that despite the fact that we live in an extremely tense political environment, Floridians of every political persuasion support access to abortion. We have hundreds of thousands of Republicans, hundreds of thousands of no party affiliation voters who've submitted petitions to get this on the ballot. And we're confident that when we make the ballot in November 2024, we will win. All right. So you are using examples, obviously, because there have been remarkable successes in red states, in blue states, no matter who brings the question, whether it's uh, anti-abortion forces or or it's uh, abortion rights forces. Voters in America, it doesn't even matter whether they like abortion or not. They simply don't want the state taking rights away. But you happen to live in a state like Texas where your governor has taken remarkable pride in taking people's rights away. Well, we live in a state where it is possible for citizens to amend the Constitution through a popular referendum. We've done it in Florida time and time again. Frequently, we voted at over 60 percent levels on fairly progressive policies like uh, a $15 minimum wage, restoring voting rights to felons. We do it over and over and over again in Florida. We're going to do it again and abortion will be protected in this state. What what do you what should we in the rest of the country be looking at in terms of milestones between now and uh, and November? What are the things that are most important that happen in the near and the midterm future for you in this effort? Well, our immediate hurdle, the last hurdle to get on the ballot is that the Florida Supreme Court needs to sign off on our ballot language. They basically need to determine that it is a single subject and that it is clear and unambiguous. We believe that uh, we've written a single subject issue, uh, which is clear and unambiguous, and we will make the ballot. Then we'll have a statewide campaign, and it will be a vigorous one. We're in a presidential election cycle, uh, but we have an army of volunteers, absolute heroes, over 10,000 volunteers working with more than 200 grassroots organizations across the state have been working with us to gather these petitions. They've generated a historic number of volunteer petitions, over a quarter million, and they're primed and ready to work on the campaign portion of this ballot initiative. We're excited to get started. In the um, off-year elections we just saw and in the uh, in the midterms, we saw something interesting that um, across the country, whether it's abortion or these other issues about rights like book banning, another big topic in Florida, it's actually driving voters out. Um, there are places where People might otherwise vote Republican who are coming out and voting for these these types of measures. Do you think this will be a motivating thing for people who are otherwise going to sit on their hands or not necessarily vote uh, in, in the upcoming election? Listen, I'm not a political pundit. I'm a mom. I've got three daughters and I'm out in the streets working on this every day. Here's what I know. People from every political persuasion, Republicans, Democrats and no party affiliation 
believe that women should have access to safe legal abortion. It's been decided. 75% of Floridians reject the six-week abortion ban that was passed by the legislature and signed by the governor. Over 70% of Floridians support the language in this constitutional amendment. And it doesn't matter what socioeconomic background people come from, what religious background, what ethnic background they come from. They all want women and girls to be safe and to have their dignity protected and not assailed by a government sticking its nose, frankly, where it doesn't belong. Anna, we will follow this closely with you. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Anna Hokemer is the executive director of the Florida Women's Freedom Coalition. We appreciate your time tonight. And that is our show for tonight. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that... That's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.